0: Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow why in the why dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year?
1: Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked
0: Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. it is now time to welcome him into the studio and your opportunity to uh, talk to the man himself ask him any question if he knows he knows if he doesn't he doesn't the very delightful dr dave is here live in the studio good
1: evening Steve.
0: happy new year to you happy new year to you <laughs> <laughs> and everybody else who's out there absolutely <laughs> have you got any science
1: stories for us i saw a quite an interesting little story this week um it's about a little creature called a Pacific Spookfish and about, <laughs> yeah. it's got very unusual eyes. Now almost all, all creatures which we've found so far, they've got eyes which work roughly like ours. They've got a lens at the front yeah. which, focuses, which focuses light onto the back of our eye, onto the retina, so you get an upside down image of what's outside on the back of the retina. You've got lots of little light sensitive cells and it detects um, where, where the lights come from by where it is in the picture and mm. you build a picture of the world outside and you can see stuff. Now, all um, all eyes that we know of either use a lens or just a little hole. Some of them have a little um, pinhole, so you've got a basic pinhole camera. Um, But none of them that people have found up till now use a mirror. Because you can actually focus light using a mirror. The biggest telescopes in the world do the same thing. Um, but all you've got to do is get the shape of the mirror right, then all of the light coming from one point will be focused onto a point on the on your retina or onto right. your sensor, and you'll be able to get a picture and you can see things. Mirrors have the advantage that you can. Um, they tend to be. You can make much bigger ones which still work. If you try and make a very big lens, you get all sorts of strange aberrations and they stop working very well. Yep. Which is the reason why big telescopes envy mirrors. But someone's been looking at this specific. Sp- fish. In fact, they've just managed to capture the first one, which is a lot. Li- they've captured alive because it lives over a 1,000 metres down. Right. But when it's really down there, it's really, really dark. It's spooky. Spooky. And the only light which is around, the really, really faint glimmerings, that um, kind of deep fish glow in the dark. And right. so if you're a, a fish living deep down, it's, it's really adv- it's a big advantage to be able to collect lots and lots of light and be able to see the little glimmers of the fish trying to catch you or fish you want to catch. Yeah. And this spook fish seems to have evolved an uh, eye uh, using a mirror. The first one we know of in the world, which focus, it focuses much more light than you could do with a lens onto the little onto its retina, and so it must have an advantage over all the uh, poor other fish. You've only got small little lenses, and so it can see them coming um, much far, further away than they can see it. So it's right. obviously been quite
0: successful. So it gets well fed.
1: Hopefully, (laughs) Mm. you'd have thought so.
0: Mm. All right, then, Okay. Well, have I got something for you now when it comes to saying, you know, how things work? Because um, a friend of mine gave me a Prezi last night, and it's a phone charm. And I thought, a phone charm? (laughs) It looks like a pet little thing which you
1: tie to your phone.
0: It is, yes. But I've got it sort of, you know, edged on there. But um, it's quite interesting because my phone's on silent. Of course, if there's any emergency, you know, I need to be alerted. But when I do get a message of uh, some description, then the little thingy sort of, uh, you know, does a, a strange little performance. Um, and it's a little glass dome with a little guitar in because <laughs> she thought it would be fun. Ooh. Oh, it's doing it now. Huh? <laughs> you see? And so um, I just wonder how does it work because it glows and flashes and the little guitar look, rings around.
1: Yeah, because it's not attached to your phone at all. No, it's not um, sweet? And in fact, it started going before the phone started ringing. So That's it sensed it.
0: Yeah, it sensed it.
1: Okay, I think what's going on here is the way the phone receives a phone call is a base station, all the the phone towers, which are all around the country, um, sends out a signal to say, is your phone about? it's your phone here, then your phone sends another signal back to the base station, says, yes, I am, send me some information. Um, and so your phone starts transmitting, and then the base station sends you the information, or if you're having a phone call, then and it'll send you the, pho- the information from, the, from what the person saying at the other end, and your phone, call, phone will transmit what you're saying back to the base station. Now, I think what's in this little phone charm is basically a very, very simple radio it's sort of tuned roughly to the sort of frequency which your phone uses. And so if it detects a signal, um, f- which your phone is transmitting, it doesn't have to be very good radio because it's only three centimeters away. Right. Um, and so it's just very, very simple, very brutal radio. If it detects a, your phone transmitting anything, it will think, oh, the phone's transmitting. Someone's probably trying to phone in or you're trying to phone out. I'll start the lights flashing and start the, um, Start the um, guitar spinning around.
0: It's cute, it's cute. It's it? very
1: cute.
0: <laughs> I hadn't seen one like that. And she went, I'm sure you'll find it useful. I said, oh, I'm sure I will. But it's, it's just great.
1: What I have noticed, I've played playing with one of these before, is that they, some of them will work fine on conventional, older-fashioned phones. Right. But they won't work on the third-generation, modern, shiny 3G phones. So they work on a different frequency. So the radio inside, it's tuned to old-fashioned phones. But if your 3G phone is transmitting on a different frequency, like a different place on the dial on the radio, you won't be able to pick it up.
0: Well, this is it, you You just need a normal phone, don't you? That's the thing. Uh, Dr. Dave, thank you very much. Right, first of all, then, to the email. Hi, Sue and Stanley. Dr. Dave tonight, then. Now, Dr. Dave, says Jackie and the Borders, leaves are now on the trees until December. With climate change, will we get to a stage where the leaves no longer fall off the trees?
1: Well, wow. um, I don't see any... Re- if the world does get warmer, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't. I mean, in fact, already there are some plants which can survive in our climate climate quite happily um, and keep their leaves all through the winter. I think rhododendrons don't lose their leaves in the winter, um, and they're fairly broad leaves. Um, so, I think. Um, and so, if... If anyone I'm
0: puzzling at that, I, 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 tendons, yeah. I, it's, just, it's
1: just a fact which has just jumped out of my brain. I think it's true.
0: Did
1: it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but certainly things like um, very narrow leaf trees, like yew trees and conifers, have always kept their leaves all the way through the winter. Mm. I and mean, the reason why plants lose their leaves is that basically. Uh, all their leaves at once in the winter, is that during the winter, if it gets very cold, even if you've got light shining on you, um, the rate of chemical reaction slows down so much because chemical reaction gets slower and slower the colder it gets. So if you're getting very, very cold, the rate at which chemical reactions go is so incredibly slowly. Below about three or four degrees centigrade, grass just can't grow at all. It just mm-hmm. stops. Um, so basically, there's no point in having a leaf there when it can't grow. If it gets very, very cold and it freezes, and you get all sorts of damage to it. Um, and basically, the advantage of having a leaf there, which could photosynthesize all winter, isn't enough to offset the loss of losing all your leaves and having to regrow them in the spring again. So, um, but if you got a lot warmer, then even though there's less light during the winter, you probably the plants would gain something by growing very slowly all winter. Mm. They wouldn't have to dump all that energy losing all the leaves. Mm. Um, during uh, all at once and then having to regrow them in the spring and they get a bit of an advantage over the trees which hadn't lost their leaves um but saying that there i think there are still deciduous trees which live quite a long way south than us so i doubt we'll lose all of our deciduous trees mm. um unless it gets very very warm and even if it did get very very warm um when you're a long way north it just gets so dark in the winter there's not really enough light to bother photosynthesizing mm. so you might find definitely in the north of scotland i'd be very surprised if you um ent- entirely lost deciduous trees mm. but yes yeah, certainly there will be a tendency to increase the number of evergreen trees um whether it will be the same species or not will depend on how they adapt mm. um, because if you're a tree which decides to lose its leaves by the temperature then as it gets warmer then you'll just think it's not cold enough I won't lose my leaves yet yeah. um, but if you're a tree which um, loses its leaves by the day length and if the day length gets shorter then you'll just lose your leaves yeah. and then you'll, then all the other trees which have still got their leaves are going to keep you able to keep growing for another couple of months and grow a bit higher taller than you so next year you'll be behind and do less well.
0: Ooh. Right, OK, well, uh, getting into the light again, um, Andrew from Cambridge would like to know how the candles that reignite work and how they keep relighting after they have been blown out. They're great fun, those, aren't they? Dave?
1: They are. Um, yeah, they always used to confuse me as a child. They're great fun. <laughs> you you oh. try and blow them out and it didn't work. Um, evil things. Um, OK, the way a candle works is what you got to start off with. Um, basically, you've got a load of wax which is basically most waxes these days are petroleum wax mm. which is basically a relative of petrol it's like um, petrol very long petrol molecules um, which all kind of um, stick together and um, so it's solid at room temperatures um, but when it heats up it melts um, okay. and that gets sort of sucked up the wick by surface tension okay. and then the wick's got lots of very large surface area so and it's quite warm in a flame so the wax evaporates once the wax evaporates, um, it can then ber- react with oxygen and burn because it's got a very large surface area, so it can um, react very quickly and burn with, with a flame. Um, if you blow a candle out, you let the smoke which comes off it, mm. that's not actually smoke, that's, little, that's wax, which is conde- which is, boils off the wick and then um, re- then condenses and forms little droplets of wax in the air. Now, um, if normally you get ember on the end of a wick, but and that's sort of glowing red, but it's not hot enough to reignite the wax. But if you um, add some magnesium powder into your wick, I mean, do, do you remember burning magnesium at school?
0: Briefly, yes, when Just we were allowed to do experiments.
1: Stuff which burn, uh, burns yes. very very hot, uh, bright um, white scary. flame, scary yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's sort the of stuff. Um, if you have so normally when it's in the wick, it's not very oxygen can't get to it, so it can't burn. Um, Because all the oxygen is being used by the wax, which is burning around it. But if you blow it out, the oxygen can get to the magnesium, which is hot enough to keep burning. It burns very hot, which is hot enough to uh, gets hotter and hotter and hotter as it slowly burns. So eventually, it's hot enough to reignite the wax vapor, which is around it, so the candle bursts back into flames.
0: Mm. All right. Well, that's uh, given an answer to that one. Thank you very much, Andrew Cambridge, for your question. Now, talking about lights, Daniel from Meldrith wanted to know about energy efficiency light bulbs. In light of the recent news that incandescent bulbs are being phased out and people have been stockpiling them. He wants to know how cost effective these bulbs actually are and where they are actually better for the environment given increased disposal costs.
1: Um... They're certainly much more efficient. They use about a tenth of the energy of a normal um maybe a fifth the energy fifth to um seventh of the energy of a normal light bulb for the same amount of light. Basically, because normal light bulbs, they out a lot of heat, they give out a lot of invisible infrared radiation, which you can't see with your eyes. So it's entirely pointless. But um, so basically, wasting energy by producing stuff you can't see. Um, if you look at how much energy, uh, compact, how much the energy cost would be um, in a compact fluorescent light bulb over its lifetime, um, which is several years, it's probably going to use about, It would probably use about twenty pounds worth of electricity um the original light bulb now they're really quite cheap they are maybe about a pound so you're about 21 pounds worth for a whole compact fluorescent light bulb's life if you did the same thing with normal light bulbs you'd probably get through um 12 or so normal light bulbs in the same time and it would use 100 pounds worth of electricity there's about it was about five times as much cost in electricity as in, with a normal light bulb than with a compact fluorescent one with an energy saving one so that's a huge advantage Compact fluorescents do use more energy to make. They're more complicated. They need some electronics in them. Mm. But when you're buying electricity, you're buying pure energy whereas when you're buying compact fluorescent light bulb you're buying some energy because someone's had to use some electricity to make it and some stuff yeah. but you're also buying somebody's time to make it lots of expensive machine time so even though it will cost a pound it have used much less than a pound's worth of electricity because otherwise whoever was making it is going to be losing money hand over fist mm. and yes they could be slightly more difficult to dispose of because there's a very small amount of mercury in them but at the moment they're just going straight in the tips they are very um, cost effective at the moment I think probably even if you include disposal costs
0: alright so so um, you know, stockpiling the um, the normal ones, I I don't get it, do you?
1: I don't really. I, there are a couple of things which compact fluorescents don't work very well for. One is definitely the normal ones don't work very well with oh, dimmer switches yeah, yeah. because um, the way a dimmer switch works, it's, it sort of turns on and off the electricity very quickly. Yes. Um, they and buzz. this produces, and they buzz, yeah. and this produces this sort of is a bit vi- um, violent for the, electro- the, the electricity being turned on and off very quickly is a bit violent for the, electric- the electronics inside the compact fluorescent, mm. and it can damage it. So they don't work very well on dimmers, and there are some light fittings which haven't really got the space for um, compact fluorescents, but they are get, getting more cunning designs of compact fluorescents which will go in more and more places these days.
0: All right, let's go to uh, our next question. Steve from Cambridge um, wanted to know uh, further to the question about trees. Um, he says, why New Zealand, with a very similar climate to the UK, had virtually all non-deciduous native trees? Good question.
1: That is a very good question. My guess is that it would be because, although New Zealand's got a very similar climate to the UK, it's actually a lot closer to the equator, um, because the northern and so- south hemispheres are very different, mostly because Antarctica is a landmass sa- over the South Pole, whereas the North Pole is over water, and around the the South Pole there's a sort of area of sea Um, basically the South Pole gets very very cold and where the North Pole is being warmed by ocean currents all the time. Mm. So the South Pole gets incredibly cold, so you get much more sea ice, so you get more heat um, reflected off the white ice back into space. So basically the Southern Hemisphere is a lot colder than the Northern Hemisphere. So although New Zealand is is about similar weather to us, it's a lot further north, it's a lot closer to the equator, so there's much, much stronger sunlight. So the winters have got much longer days. So in the winter, although it might snow occasionally, you're not Losing the plant isn't losing as much um, energy in, in the UK. The, the plant's not losing much energy by losing its leaves because there's no, not much light there anyway. But in New Zealand, even in the winter, there's still quite strong sunlight because it, I'm, I haven't got the last years in my head, it's probably somewhere around the south of Spain, sort mm. of latitude. So, very, very strong sunlight. So, even in the middle of winter, it's worth the plant having a leaf there and um, photosynthesizing, photosynthesizing and gaining more fuel.
0: Time to have one of um, a caller on air. So let's go to the phones right now. Let's welcome Tony onto the show. Hello, Tony. Good evening, sir. Happy New Year to you. And a very
1: happy new year to you and Dr. Dave. And you, Tony. Thank you. <laughs> What's your
0: question for us, well, Tony? The
1: question tonight is um, the moon was a bit uh, nearer the earth, I believe, the other day. When it gets nearer the earth, does it make the tide any higher? Yes, is a simple answer. Of course, it's always a more complicated answer. (laughs) Um, Basically, the reason why we get tides is that um, the moon's gravity gets weaker the further away you go from it. So uh, because everything attracts everything else, but the further away you are from uh, mass, the less you're attracted to it. So the the, the side of the earth or the water on the side of the earth closest to the moon is attracted to the moon very st- strong, uh, strongly the earth is attracted slightly less strongly and the water on the other side is attracted even less strongly so you can imagine the ho- in in some way um, the whole Earth is sort of falling towards the Moon all the time, but the water closest to it is trying to fall faster, so you get a bulge closest to the Moon. Um, you get and then the Earth is falling a bit f- bit faster than uh, a bit slower than that. And then the water on the far side is falling the slowest, so it gets left behind. So you sort of get a bulge with the water on one side being pulled towards the Moon, and then the Earth is being, leaving the water on the far side behind. So you get two bulges, and the Earth spins inside the water every day. And so you get, to, as, as you go around, if you're standing on the Earth, you go through the two bulges and you get two tides. So, yes, the clo- and the closer the moon is, the bigger the difference is going to be between the um, gravity on the close side and the far side. So the bigger the tides will be. Ah, it's from a mini Tsunamis, like all it whatever it is. <laughs> tsunami. I mean, it, it, it yeah, is like a actually a tidal wave. I mean, in fact, um, the, the real tidal wa- real tidal waves. are our sort of two real tidal waves going around the Earth all the ti- time uh-huh. as the Earth spins inside um, the Moon's gravity. Of course, whether you get the highest tides um, at the time when the Moon is closest isn't necessarily the case because you've also got the Sun. Yeah. And so, um, basically, you get the biggest tides when either the, when the moon um, is either um, in between us and the sun, or exactly on the opposite side. Um, because um, that way, if the moon's between us and the sun, then both the sun and the moon are pulling in the same direction. Um, so you get much b- a bigger. It pulls very hard on the water closest to them, and least hard on much less strongly on the water on the other side. So you get a spring tide if they're at right angles to each other, they're sort of pulling in opposite directions, so you um, get a much weaker tide, so you get neap tide, and also when they're opposite each other, um, because the water closest to the moon is getting pulled very strongly towards it in one way, um, but weakly in the other direction by the sun and the water, close, uh, basically because the moon's on the other side, but it all works out. Sorry, <laughs> I need to draw a diagram. Um, no, so I know our Arms exist. are going everywhere yeah. in here, um, so i get the general You get the general gist. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you get the really, really h- biggest tides um, of the year, or even over several years, when the moon is at its closest and the moon and the sun are lining up. Yep. That's when you get the really, really big tides. Yeah, oh, lovely. I've
0: learned a lot tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, dear. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Now, uh, Luke has sent uh, an email in. Um, How do materials change colour with temperature?
1: So, I think he's thinking of those, like, things like the Global Hypercolour T-shirts and the mugs where you pour hot water in and they... That
0: sounds about right. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, they, they change colour, and you can get patterns which appear and disappear on the mug as you pour water into them. Yeah. And Chris desperately wants one of these for the Naked Scientist. So you have a mug which, um, where, he's holding, where his lab coat disappears as, as you pour the water in. But we won't go into that. Right. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, the way the way a lot of these work is that inside them, in the dye, which is the colouring, you've got two materials. One of them is a dye which changes colour depending on the acidity a Mm. bit like litmus paper so if you remember with litmus paper if you put it in acid it goes red if you put it in alkali it goes blue Mm. Um, red cabbage does the same thing so if you put vinegar on red red cabbage it goes a nice red colour but if you try and boil red cabbage in Cambridge water which is quite alkali it'll go a blue colour oh right (laughs) okay Um, kitchen
0: science coming in kitchen there, Kitchen science, you. indeed.
1: Um, now, what they do with this dye in the mugs and things is they then add an acid, which will only melt at a certain temperature. And acids don't really act as acids when they're a solid. So when they're a solid, um, you've got a bit of alkali lying around, so the material is one colour. Yeah. But then when you heat it up, the acid uh, melts It starts acting as acid, changes the colour of the um, dye. Dye suddenly is an acidic environment. It's an indicator it changes colour. Mm. Um, So the mug changes colour. And then as it cools down again, the acid crystallises out again, stops acting as acid, and it goes back to its original colour.
0: Um, Hello to uh, Paul, who's a new listener from Colchester. Lovely to have you listen to the show, Paul. Uh, Paul asks you, Dr Dave, what causes static electricity?
1: Okay. Um, basically static electricity is a build up of charge so um, inside all the atoms of the, of the universe basically in the centre of them you've got a lump of positive charge and around the outside you've got a whole cloud of little electrons mm-hmm. positive attracts negative so normally they're, they're about neutral, you have got the same number of electrons as protons so it's neutral and elect- the electromagnetic force is incredibly strong so it's very hard to get a very big difference in the number of electrons and protons so you've got Basically, everything's neutral. Um, however, some materials will attract will, will attract electrons slightly more than others. So, for example, rubber attracts um, electrons slightly more than hair or wool does. Right. So if you touch rubber onto a hair, some electrons tend to move from the hair onto the rubber, just a few of them. Right. And then take it away again, they'll stay there. So your so the balloon will come slightly negatively charged and your hair will be slightly positively charged.
0: Alright, a bit like a curry comb on a
1: horse. Um, sort of,
0: yes. Yeah. A curry comb a rubber curry comb on a yeah,
1: horse. They, right? Yeah, okay, so yeah. you and then every time then if you rub this balloon on the hair, every yeah. time it touches a hair, some more charge will move onto the balloon and every time it releases it will stay there. Right. So slowly you get a load of negative charge on the balloon and the hair is positively charged. So now they'll attract each other because positive attracts negative. Uh-huh. So if you move the balloon near your hair, it'll suddenly get attracted to the balloon. You feel you get that really weird feeling when you move the balloon near your hair? If you ever But well, I know a balloon you do, Dave, I because do. you're
0: always doing stuff like that and you're quite hairy. <laughs> I, I
1: I do. That. <laughs> For some reason, balloons charge the best on my legs.
0: Do (laughs) they? Yes. Right, good for that.
1: (laughs) Um, So um, mostly static electricity is due to things rubbing rubbing against each other. So if you have rubber shoes and you walk across a wall carpet, then you'll slowly move charge onto your shoes and you'll slowly become negatively charged. Mm. And then if you touch something which is attached to earth, like... Something metal well, yes, you get sparks jumping
0: I get this all the time because, as you can see, our um, rubbish bin there is a metal bin with a rubber sack in it, yeah, and often I go across the, of the bin and go, <laughs> I just get charged from it
1: yeah it's probably' it's probably not the bin which is ch- you're getting a charge from, it's probably more your shoes rubbing across the carpet right, as you walk across the carpet, you charge up. Right, and then when you touch the bin, because the bin's a good conductor, yeah, um, and you're you're probably very negatively charged or positively charged depends what your shoes are made, your soles, your shoes are made out of. Right, you've got a load of charge. When you move your finger near the bin, bin, all the charge will run to the end of your finger. When you get close enough, it will jump from your finger to the bin through the air, forming a little spark.
0: Yeah, Uh, Will says that he often gets it on the top of his car door. Why is that?
1: basically air rubbing across things can also charge them up so in the same way if the a material your car is made out of attract likes electrons more than air does then electrons will get moved from the transferred from the air as you flows past to the um car paint or whatever yeah. so the car charges up it's now now but less of a problem but you used to have tires which were made out of rubber yeah. which are very good insulators so the um, charge would build up very strongly on the car. You get out, you touch something, big a big shock. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a really big problem with helicopters because they're not, they're not touch, they, don't, they don't touch the ground.
0: Oh right, yeah, of course.
1: So, so there's nothing nowhere for this charge to escape to. So if, especially on a dry day, if there's helicopter, you especially got a big whirling blade at the top, which yeah. is moving through lots and lots of air, lots of rubbing against the air, you can try, build up really big charges, thousands and thousands and thousands of volts. And then if you're a guy who's coming down a winch rope. Um, and then you try and get on a ship, which is earthed, yeah. then suddenly all of that charge is going to try and run through you, and it can, act, it can be very unpleasant and quite dangerous. So if someone is being dropped out, um, lowered down a winch rope, what they tend to do is if you're standing on a ship, you get a, uh, a, a kind of hook, which is earthed, and you touch that to the, to a rope, to the ro- winch rope first. Right. So all the charge runs down through your hook and through a wire onto the ship. So it doesn't run through the guy who's coming down the winch rope, and does, he doesn't get electrocuted, basically.
0: Well, I didn't know that. Um, We've got one here from um, Sean, who says, um, if I were to light a match from a matchbox in space, although there would be no flame because there is no oxygen to start a fire, would the flint of the match still ignite? So uh, that would be like a a lighter, you know, if you think about a lighter or something like that.
1: I think it depends. The flint on a lighter, I don't think, would ignite because the way that works is you have a very brittle metal which will react very strongly with air. Something like osmium, I think, is one that is involved in it sometimes. Um, And you get little lumps of that which get knocked off. When they get knocked off the metal, you put quite a lot of energy into, them, and they get hot, and they get hot enough to start burning in the air. So the flint is actually little bits of metal burning in the oxygen of the air. However, a match. I think is different. You can get matches which will actually strike underwater, and quite often those have got the, an oxidizer inside the head. Mm-hmm. It's basically a, a small piece of explosive, and so I think the match head would ignite, but not the um, not the, not the, the rest of it wouldn't burn. You wouldn't get a flame. So I think a match probably would get a flare off the head, but not the body. And um, with uh, especially red matches, but um, the uh, fl- flint off a lighter wouldn't. You just get little bits of metal flying around.
0: Now, Jules in the uh, lounge says, uh, "Is it possible to drink rainwater without boiling it? Would you?"
1: Um, rainwater, yes, definitely. Okay. Um, rainwater has basically um, water's evaporated. Yep. When water evaporates, no solids can go with it because if it's a solid, it's not going to evaporate and turn into a gas. So you basically just got water, and so none, no microbes or no disease-forming things could get out, um, couldn't evaporate as well. So the water, you get lots of water vapour going up as a gas, then it condenses in clouds and falls out of the sky. So rainwater, this is the same process of distillation, it forms very pure water. Mm. Um, The only things which could possibly contaminate it are things which could also be gases, things like carbon dioxide. So unless anyone is spraying an awful lot of poisonous gases into the air where you are, which I doubt, um, rainwater is perfectly safe to drink once it hits something of course then it can pick up whatever it's hit f- pick up whatever's landed on wh- whatever's what it's, what it's hit yeah. so I mean p- p- drinking rainwater out of a drain might not um, drain off your roof is probably or gutter is not necessarily a good idea depending on the state of your gutters but yes yeah, straight out, out of the sky rainwater is perfectly safe
0: Cathy from Colchester wanted to know why is it that at night she can see lights in the skies of aeroplanes that don't appear to be moving whereas during the day you can see the plane moving
1: I would have thought it's to do with the fact that you can probably see a plane much further away at night than during the day. Mm. Uh, Probably two things. One is that you can see a plane further away because you've got a really bright light on it and so you can probably see it 10, 20, 30 miles away Uh um, just from the light. Um, Whereas um, during the day, by the time it got that far away, you'd be so small you'd hardly see it. Um, So basically you're seeing planes further away so they're they're going to be moving across um, the sky more slowly because they're further away, basically. The other thing is that when, at night, you've got less points of reference. Mm. So unless you've got a very bright, starry night, you're somewhere out in the um, countryside where you can see the stars nicely. If you look up at the sky, it looks fairly black. There's not a lot of things to um, compare the movement of the planes against, Mm. whereas during the day you've got bits of cloud and things. So you can see the plane moving past things, so you know it's moving, whereas it's very hard to judge a very, very small change in angle if you've got nothing to judge it against. But I think the biggest effect is probably you can see them from further away.
0: One last one um, from Jeff, this one, who says, um, does the sun rotate just like the Earth does? I've never thought about that one before, so good question, Jeff. It is a good question.
1: Um, the sun does rotate, um, although not quite like the Earth does. The sun rotates in quite an interesting way, in that it doesn't all rotate at the same speed. Um, the I think the equator... Of the sun rotates about once every um, twenty five days, whereas if you get up to sort of thirty-four, about similar last year to us it 's rotating once every twenty seven days right so if you imagine it, the middle of it's, the middles going around more slowly than the top yeah, because the sun isn 't a solid lump like the earth it 's made out of very hot gases it's, if you could, tried to stand on it you 'd sink very quickly um, it 's much much less dense yeah. it 's less dense than water yeah. So it's much less dense than water, and yeah. so it's all flowing around. Um, because hot gas expands and rises, and the centre of the sun is hot, um, you get what we call convection current. So in some areas of the sun you'll get um, hot gases rising upwards, and other places you'll get them falling. Um, because the centre of the sun is sm- smaller, it's going to... The speed, at, if you imagine something, imagine a, um, a roundabout. Mm. If you're near the middle of the roundabout, you're not going to be turning as fast as if you're near out at the edge. You're not moving as fast yeah. because you've, you go know, for every rotation on a roundabout. You're going to be going um, less far when you're near the middle than when you're on the outside. So the so the gas which is moving up from the centre of the sun isn't isn't moving very fast, isn't rotating very fast because it was near the centre. So places where the gas is rising upwards tend to rotate more slowly than places where it's falling down again. So different parts that so see huge winds forming around the sun. So some parts of the sun are moving, are rotating at different speeds than others.
0: That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by The Welcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at NakedScientists.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com.